Welcome to season two of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners. This podcast is a production of Startup Space, an entrepreneurship community building platform. I'm your host, David Panraj. In this podcast, we will speak with some of the leading voices in the field of inclusive entrepreneurship and learn from their best practices to apply in our own communities as practitioners. Today, we'll be speaking with Pam Lewis. Pam is the executive director for the New Economy Initiative. Welcome, Pam. Thank you for having me, David. Glad to be here with you. So, Pam, tell us a little bit about your work, your title, and your organization in Detroit. Sure. So the New Economy Initiative is a special project that sits within the community foundation there. And uh, it's a 13-year-old initiative that was formulated when a group of philanthropic foundations came together and decided they wanted to influence um, the economy of Southeast Michigan in an inclusive way through entrepreneurship and business support. And so we have been making grants and building an ecosystem of support for entrepreneurs in the Metro Detroit area. And what that means is we make grants to uh, accelerators, incubators, community development finance institutions or microfinance organizations, practical assistance providers, and community development organizations that are all playing a role in helping uh, individuals in our community that want to start a business find a path to resources. So how did you get started going about this work, Pam? How did I get started going about this work? Well, it's it's actually um, not that interesting of a story. I mean, it's funny because I think a lot of people are mission-driven um, where they find, you know, an area that is just so much a part of them and they get a chance to pursue it. Uh, in my case, I'll, I'm a little different. I was more process-driven. Um, I spent 20, no, 16 years or so at the local utility as an engineer and found myself uh, doing a lot of continuous improvement work over time and uh, took an opportunity to leave that. When I left the utility here, I actually stumbled upon an opportunity to work with a nonprofit that was trying to activate a, um, uh, a museum, a building on the Motown Center Museum um, Motown Museum in Detroit. The reason why this is significant to the story is because that was the first time I've been in corporate world as an engineer, and this was the first time that I started to see the intersection of economic development, placemaking, and, non, and the philanthropic community. And even though that effort didn't necessarily succeed, it led me to work at a uh, clean tech accelerator where I had an opportunity to build out and run programs that the state was funding to support clean tech entrepreneurs. Um, and from there, I find, found my way uh, to Coffin Foundation, where I helped when NEI first launched. Um, they had hired me to represent the Coffin Foundation in the Detroit area, and we were activating programs from Coffin to support uh, entrepreneurship. And so I came into this space Quite accidentally, um, I didn't have a lot of exposure to entrepreneurship uh, at the time, but I loved the process of uh, working on projects that were taking nothing, you know, and creating something and finding gaps and using uh, solutions that were in place to solve them. And I uh, had the privilege of landing into this space. And so I've been at NEI for 10 years now. 
been leading it for, I think, four or five. Um, and the, the mission of supporting entrepreneurs in an inclusive way has now become a part of me. Uh, but the process of figuring out, you know, how to take a problem and how do you apply solutions to it uh, in community was really what drove me to it. Uh, in my own career, I transitioned from working in corporate America, uh, working on uh, process improvement. Uh, I was a Lean Six Sigma black belt. And uh, mm -hmm. it's amazing how some of these corporate skills translate so well uh, into supporting nonprofits and, and supporting community building. So I absolutely uh, get your point. Yeah, and you don't even realize it at the time, right? Um, but it's not until you, you know, leave that world and you can apply it that you really see the benefit of, um, of those skills that you build in that corporate sector. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I am a little bit curious about what is the most challenging aspect of being an ecosystem convener and always focusing on giving and uh, supporting the infrastructure in the community? <laughs> um, you asked that in January of 2021, uh, right when we're, you know, 11 months into a pandemic. So <laughs> the, the most challenging aspect of this, particularly in the space that we're now in, where we're focused on supporting the most vulnerable micro businesses in the most underserved communities. Um, you know, the biggest challenge is, is feeling like there's just not enough that you could ever do. Uh, that's been the most recent largest challenge. Um, I think when you think about the task of, of entrepreneurship and the path of entrepreneurship, it's not like everybody in the world is going to become an entrepreneur and we're not trying to create a path for that. I mean, entrepreneurs are born and entrepreneurs are developed and it takes uh, a level of tenacity and grit that not, not, not everyone has. Um, but if you can create, if you can equalize that so that the same person with a great idea and the tenacity to build a business, but doesn't necessarily have the privilege of family resources or relatives that can support them or access in networks to, you know, VCs or, or investors, if you can create that same path of opportunity, uh, it's very rewarding. Um, but the challenge of that is the same thing that's very rewarding, right? Um, and so our work is all couched in how do we make sure that individuals that don't have necessarily personal strategic relationships and networks still have that same opportunity as someone that does, because when both of those people succeed, they contribute so positively to the economy in so many different ways. Um, so the biggest challenge is making the case for that vulnerable, underserved entrepreneur, as well as making sure that um, the community at large sees the value of that small business in the same way they see a tech business or a venture business. So let's go down that path a little bit and explore these barriers uh, to starts. And like you said, you know, if two entrepreneurs have the same set of resources, uh, you know, they both have the equal opportunity to wealth creation. What are some of the bigger challenges you've seen in the Detroit and the Southeast Mich Michigan ecosystem around entry for entrepreneurs uh, in your community? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll, I, I'll try to answer that with um, sharing a little bit of a story. So 
the title of the story would be Pickles and Tea. And the reason why I say that is there's two entrepreneurs and, and hopefully they're okay with me sharing their stories as an example. Um, Joe McClure, who is the founder of McClure Pickles, he's one of the founders of McClure Pickles, and a woman named Nyella, Nyella uh, Ellis, who's the founder of Ellis Island Tea. So Nyella, African-American female, um, if you were to talk to her, you, she'd tell you that she you know, went to Howard and decided to drop out. Uh, Joe McClure, you know, white male, um, I think he's a physicist or something. Um, so both of them have family recipes, had family recipes passed down to them. Nyella's was to create uh, hibiscus-driven, organic, healthy, sweet tea. Joe's is to create a really flavorful, powerful pickle, you know, pickle. <laughs> um, okay, both creative, both family recipes. Uh, Joe went to his family and got a $50,000 check to sort out how he might do this. Um, Nayila, you know, family didn't have that, right? Um, you know, Nayila had to uh, work out the recipe uh, on her own. Um, she was, you know, we have an Eastern market uh, where, where businesses can come and sell their goods in Detroit. Uh, she didn't even have the money to rent a booth. She was driving around the perimeter of Eastern Market selling tea out of the trunk of her car. Um, again, two very similar stories, but two very different paths. And when Joe was getting investment from some of the CDFIs and, you know, being able to kind of circulate his own dollars to create more investment uh, and build that capacity, Nayela struggled. Um, she struggled to get that type of support, even within our own ecosystem. But she started getting support through a lot of the business plan competitions, you know. So Detroit has a a, a culture of, of business plan competitions. And so she was raising money that way. And then eventually they end up in the same place, right? They both end up in national stores. They both end up um, hiring residents from Detroit to manufacture their products. They both end up with uh, additional investment. And now... They're actually colleagues and neighbors uh, in their facilities. So I don't know if I answered the question, but the point is in this space, there are these very two different types of paths and even our own system that we really were working to ensure that it was inclusive still missed uh, investment in a person like Naila, uh, except for a competition. And so we have to be very honest with ourselves to pull back and ask why, why is that happening? How did that happen? And what is it about the CDFI and microfinance world that still misses an entrepreneur like that? Um, when we peeled, when we started to look at this in the first place, we realized in a lot of cases, the, the finance um, players in our community were more used to um, products that weren't necessarily physical products. They were more used to investing in tech uh, type products. And so, you know, we had to come to grips with there's more to um, growth companies than just tech companies. There's also high growth companies that are that have products that can be sold, you know, and scaled nationally. Uh, but that's just some of the examples that we've, you know, we've had to contend with uh, within our own ecosystem through two stories. 
the good news is they're both quite successful. Oh, it's fascinating. There is one component here, which is educating the ecosystem of uh, these providers. What are some other things that we can do to lower these barriers? Because I immediately wonder how many Naelas are out there that we haven't heard about who have done all of the same things. And Naela was so fortunate to uh, have these resources like pitch competitions, et cetera. Uh, what is the, the lowest uh, common denominator, Pam, that we should be going after to try and make sure that when there is an aspiring entrepreneur that has the grit, has the idea that uh, we are not disadvantaging them, them, uh, them by creating these barriers uh, in the community? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and this is something I, I honestly hadn't really talked about too much before. And I have the opportunity to talk about this a lot, but I just thought of it, David. Um, you know, part of it is the bias around sectors. What do I mean by that? So when you think about, you know, IT and tech and apps, right, everybody gets that. And it seems like there's a whole community of support around how do you find those people? How do you support those people? How do you make sure those businesses grow because they're going to make such a big difference? Naila had a tea product, a drink, a, a, a beverage, right? The other sector is, you know, how do people see health and beauty? Um, this is another sector that I've found where there's a lot of women of color in. Um, and if down from the state to the VCs to, you know, those of us investing in entrepreneurship, um, I think there are a lot of Nailas in beauty salons developing products um, that can serve a market that is huge, but people don't get the health and beauty sector, particularly if it's women of color, you know, beauty. Um, people don't get, people with the money don't get these sectors. If we could start to, to your point, there's education on the entrepreneurial side about resources but I'm starting to think there also ought to be education and case speaking on the funding and venture side, the people that hold the resources, to expose them to the case around certain sectors that aren't, may not be as obvious to that type of investor. Is this making sense? It absolutely does. In fact, uh, I would even venture out to say that Shark Tank and that whole idea around high growth, high tech startups has, has done a big disservice to Main Street. That if you don't have a 10x multiple of uh, your revenue, or if you cannot show scalability, uh, it's instantly seen as a, an inferior way of starting a business, right? And I think we need to kind of put the focus back on lifestyle businesses, solopreneurs, and say that entrepreneurship should really be defined as wealth creation. Right, not about not about making the rich richer, but giving right giving people with grit uh, a way to actually break through cyclical poverty and generational wealth gaps. Uh, and I think the work you're doing, Pam, there is so critical in in highlighting this. Uh, what does the landscape in Detroit look around uh, this whole idea of uh, valuing Main Street? Is that conversation happening? Yeah, it's starting to. I mean. Just to build on what you were just saying, you're right. It's it's job creation, but it's accessible job creation, right? Creation, because when small when Main Street businesses are thriving in a community, more than likely they're employing the people that live in that community. And if you have a community like Detroit, where 67% of the people that are actually working 
are leaving Detroit to find work that is in alignment with their skills, the more we can do to develop and grow Main Street and small businesses within the neighborhoods, the better we can create accessible and proximate jobs for residents. Um, wealth creation is the other thing, right? Like you mentioned, home ownership and entrepreneurship are the two top uh, things to accelerate wealth creation. I read a stat recently that said, I think um, 33% of uh, business assets and financial assets are strong within 33% of white uh, individuals in the country. For like Latinx, it's 15%. For Blacks, it's eight. Um, the more we can do to support business ownership of black and brown individuals in our community, um, we can close that wealth gap. And the other one, David, um, with Main Street Business is safe corridors, safe commercial corridors. So I said all that attached to your last comment and forgot, totally forgot the question you just asked me. So you have to ask me again. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> Absolutely. Well, the question was around in, in Detroit specifically, are there uh, things happening to kind of improve visibility into funding? Oh, for Main Street. Yeah. 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 There, there is. I mean, um, so our work at the New Economy Initiative, I think it's been about six or seven years ago. Um, initially, our work was focused more on innovation and venture um, to catalyze things there. But we quickly because inclusion mattered so much to us too, we quickly started looking at the reinforcing loop between small businesses and venture businesses. So what do I mean by that? If you have you know, uh, new tech companies popping up in Detroit, well, the people that are working at those tech companies need to have a coffee shop and a service, you know, a cleaners and, and this kind of business to service them. So there is this reinforcing loop that I think we often forget. And so philanthropy through New Economy Initiative, and, and so New Economy Initiative is funded by foundations like Ford and Kresge and Knight Foundation and, and Wilson and Kellogg and others. Um, we began to invest in an infrastructure of support, particularly for not just new businesses, but also existing small businesses that are functioning in neighborhoods. And this came through the form of how do we make sure that there's more micro lending happening. Um, you know, we have CDFIs, but there's also a role for microfinance organizations, organizations that can lend smaller amounts of dollars more frequently without the risk. How can we ensure that there's practical assistance? Because what we started to learn is you can loan people capital all day long, but for certain types of businesses, there needs to be um, some engagement in terms of getting ready to receive that capital and also helping a business manage that capital so that it becomes a benefit to that business and it doesn't cripple them. Um, and the other thing we learned and started funding, David, was there's a fascinating role around community development organizations. Now, I don't know how other cities are, but Detroit has a big uh, landscape of what we call CDOs, community development organizations that are tied to specific neighborhoods that deal with real estate, they deal with uh, health and human services in some communities where there's a lot of English second language citizens, they're dealing with you know how to help people find um, social services and other types of needs. So we, and, and we see those CDOs as very trusted um, community members. So we started 
investing in these CDOs and building their capacity to serve as like a concierge of sorts to the small businesses in their neighborhoods to connect them with these other players that we were funding. Um, so there's been a lot of work done in Detroit around supporting that Main Street business. Um, but what we realize is most of that support is coming from philanthropy. And, of, and then also the mayor has done a lot uh, through some of his programming that he's been very creative with funding to support it. And so what happened with, I know we're not talking about COVID yet, but something happened with that hor this horrible crisis of COVID that we're in when all the social uh, distancing orders came down, I think what has happened is it's put a light on for a lot more people of the criticality of these small businesses and what they mean to the community. Um, and so now we see more people, people that we had not seen at this table before talking about what can we be doing for micro businesses? How can we, you know, you saw the state moving thousands, millions of dollars to my, to business, small businesses that they hadn't done in that way before. Um, so there's a momentum. It's a shame that the crisis has uh, turned this light on. For some of us, it's a flag we've been raising for a long time. But the point is, until the public sector uh, really starts to segment micro businesses in a way that they look at manufacturing and larger companies and everything else, um, these businesses are going to continue to be uh, lost in the shuffle of how resources get applied. So let's talk a little bit about COVID. Uh, now that we're on this topic, what have you seen, Pam, in, in the middle of COVID other than this silver lining around uh, raising awareness uh, for micro businesses? Have you seen uh, other systemic issues pop up that... Uh, that maybe if it weren't for a crisis, we wouldn't get to see? Yeah, um, there's uh, one that, the first one that comes to mind is the whole uh, way that the government, the SBA um, distributes capital to support small businesses in the country. Um, what do I mean by that? Uh -huh. This got really loud during COVID with the whole PPP and EIDL. Uh, great program. Glad it was launched. Um, but if you looked at data from 2019 and you watched how the SBA 7A program provides lending to small businesses in America, you'll see that the majority of the, the majority of the people getting those loans are businesses led by white males. Um, women now are at a third, which I think is really good. Um, but if you look at Latinx businesses or Black businesses, I think the Latinx group was at 6% and the Black businesses at 3 um, Now, why is that? A lot of that SBA lending that we also learned through the COVID uh, crisis is tied to relationships with commercial banks. And what we have come to learn by the work that we do with our grantees that are helping small businesses and the data that we collect Many of the smaller small businesses in a city like Detroit don't necessarily have relationships with commercial banks. And so this to me becomes one of those uh, issues that got really loud during COVID um, that is an opportunity um, because if the path to SBA lending is through a commercial bank and most of our smaller small businesses in communities like Detroit don't have that, um, what's the gap that can be filled there? 
you know, is it because the SBA doesn't like a smaller small business? I don't think so. I think the program may be designed for a larger small business. And so when we lump a two-person, you know, service center in a neighborhood to a 50-person manufacturing company and try to treat them the same way, um, you know, common sense tells us who's going to come out, you know, on the bottom of that fight (laughs) all the time. So I think that's one of the big issues that I've seen um, through this pandemic. Yeah, and that's so interesting, Pam. We also looked at some other metrics that might corroborate what you just said. We found that the loans also went to uh, businesses that might not need the money because I was talking to a CDFI out in Denver last week and I said, you know, are you seeing this crisis play out uh, in your borrower community? And they said, well, we're actually seeing that they're actually coming to us for expansion plans because uh, like like you said, because that exas- existing relationship existed with the bank, they were able to get funding. And in some cases, even when they didn't need the funding, just because they had a relationship, they were able to get the money. Uh, and so it, it definitely is not uh, a level playing field. It, these programs, uh, just by their design, tend to push the people that really need it to the bottom. Uh, right. And then the other metric we saw was that uh, that that there was a huge gap in the businesses that were uh, started a year. So in terms of analyzing um, the health of the businesses, we found that there was a big gap for the businesses that started a year or eighteen months before COVID, um, and there was a big hole in that in that uh, set of responses. But but beyond two years, there was a lot of uh, responses. Plus, cash on hand had improved from like twenty seven days to forty five days. <laughs> Uh, and, then there, and there were startups coming through the process because, again, there was money to start, but the businesses that existed that were still uh, on shaky ground or had just started were the ones that uh, fared the worst, which uh, I think these these loans were supposed to kind of help them, and it really never got to them. Yeah, it's quite a, it's quite a predicament, isn't it? And, and, I, and not to just pick on the government and the SBA, I'm going to pick on our own ecosystem too. So one of the things that I also saw even in our own work within Metro Detroit was that we built this network of support with nonprofits helping entrepreneurs and convening these nonprofit leaders and talking to them on a regular basis and understanding gaps. But we did that without actually completing that feedback loop. We, had, we learned through COVID, we had not talked enough to actual entrepreneurs, you know, whether it's through surveying or we, we, we talked to them through our grantees and we trust that, but it was a little qualitative and anecdotal and we, and we collected data around how our grantees serviced those entrepreneurs so that we could see how many people were being helped, you know, the demographic of that owner, what, what revenue they had or, or employees, whatever. But we weren't getting at, is this network of support really aligned with what that business owner actually needs? And so that's shame on us. And so we've been doing course correcting, as you know, David, to make sure that we bake into our system of supporting this network that can help business owners, that we bake into that system a feedback loop that actually includes the voice of the business owner. 
um, saying it out loud, it, you know, it seems like the blinding glimpse of the obvious, but it really was not uh, a robust part of this, not in the way that it should have been. So I don't want to make it seem like I'm just throwing rocks at the government. I'm throwing rocks at our house too. Yep. And I think, uh, you know, coming from a process driven uh, perspective, I think uh, this will help in the long term because once you've built these processes out and these plumbing lines into the entrepreneurs themselves, you'll be able to get a lot of data back that can help with course correcting in the future about whether they're actually getting access to uh, the infrastructure that's being set up to help them. Right. And, uh, and I think even SBA, uh, the recent push uh, with the Ascent platform for women, uh, and then also with earmarking a lot of the loans specifically for diverse communities, uh, I think are all, uh, all of us listening and saying, we, we do want to take the data and go back and provide uh, better support. Absolutely. So I, I have just a couple more questions, Pam. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation already. I feel like we might have to do like uh, part two once COVID <laughs> over <laughs> uh, because we're in the middle of this. But uh, just looking back, a lot of our listeners are practitioners of ecosystem building. Uh, I would love to kind of get your perspective on in the last six to seven years and even over the lifetime of, lifespan of your work with NEI, what are some best practices that you've written down that if somebody came to you and asked you for guidance in an emerging ecosystem, uh, and by the way, this is a real question I've been asked before uh, about how NEI gets it right so much of the time, uh, <laughs> what, yeah, and a huge compliment to your work, how can this be replicated in other communities? What are like three or four best practices that you would share with practitioners? One, NEI, NEI doesn't get it right most of the time. I think one of the best practices is if you are developing programs or a system of programs to support entrepreneurs, you should make sure that you're, you are, you're clear on the end goal, but you're not so tied to the approach to get there. Um, one of the reasons why NEI has, uh, is perceived as being successful is because we actually have, you know, we, we, we're flexible, right? You know, if we had, one way of getting to the, we have this theory of change and we're going to make this impact on the economy and we're going to do it through this way and we're never going to change how that approach is. Uh, we would have been obsolete probably, you know, seven years ago. Um, but the, the ability to be flexible, to know what you're trying to accomplish, but to also bake in the flexibility that you don't know everything and you need to sometimes change your approach to get there is one piece of advice. The other one is what I just talked about. Um, if at the end of the day, the work you're doing is to serve an entrepreneur in your community, then by, good, by, by God, get that entrepreneur's voice or some representation of their voice in the room with you and do it sooner than later. Um, that's a lesson that we are learning now. And I think the third one is there's no, there's no group that can solve all these problems in and of themselves. If there's a if there's an organization in your community community and they're saying, or you're or you're that organization and you're saying we're gonna we're gonna work on entrepreneurship and be the point person for the tech and be the point person for the small business and we're gonna have a fun and we're gonna have this, um, don't do that. It is not. It's hard to have these one stop shops in terms of service delivery. 
you need to have more of a distributed model so that people can get good at the part that they're playing and then have a way of making sure that these players know each other exist and that they're working as a community. And the other, the last thing I'll say is nothing works if there aren't people that entrepreneurs trust to point them to what they need. You know, just like us, you know, when, when the advice is coming from someone you trust, you listen to it differently. And entrepreneurs trust other entrepreneurs. Um, entrepreneurs and business owners also trust the community people, the, the community development organizations in their neighborhood that, that care about their other needs. Engage these types of folks into your ecosystem as well to be those points of entry for entrepreneurs to find what they need. because. Trust is just one of the biggest critical factors in all of this. Wow. Fascinating. I will just highlight two of the things you said. One around this zero-sum game or the fixed pie mentality uh, where there are winners and losers versus how we can all collectively be much better versions of ourselves. Uh, and the ecosystems that believe that tend to stand out uh, instantly. And we work in so many different communities across the U.S. Uh, I was in a, a panel discussion earlier today. I was saying where you can even sniff it out just from the conversations you have when an ecosystem is fragmented and siloed versus where there is uh, an inclusive approach where, like you said, we're making each other better and we don't have to conquer all things uh, mm -hmm. or be all things for all people. So uh, that is uh, such a highlight that I think uh, I would love to stress. And the second point is around these trusted connections in the community. Uh, and especially for emerging ecosystem builders, one of the points that others who come on this program have stressed is that some of this takes years and years of building these trusted networks. That uh, without the trusted networks, you don't have access into these communities. Um, and I think of organizations like Global Detroit and Access and others that have really been in the front lines of being those trusted connections into these uh, immigrant and other minority communities in Detroit and uh, the need to kind of uh, uh, keep and foster these uh, trusted networks. So I think both are uh, points that I've heard over and over again. And thank you for bringing that up and sharing uh, your perspective on that today. Thank you. Yeah. So with that, Pam, uh, I will just say one last quick plug uh, uh, for our work together, which is that uh, the work that you've done in just connecting the resources in the ecosystem can now be found on the NEI hub on startup space. Uh, so if you're in Southeast Michigan, uh, you can get free access to the work that you've done uh, and also uh, other programs that are available in the Southeast uh, Detroit or Southeast uh, Michigan ecosystem around COVID-19 can also be found uh, in the NEI hub on startup space. Absolutely. Perfect. So thank you for being on the show today. Uh, is there a, a preferred way if our audience wants to reach out to you? Would it be through email or social media? Is there a preferred way to get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you'll find me there. And uh, of course, uh, neweconomyinitiative.org. Go to our website and you can uh, contact me through that as well. It's been a pleasure talking to you about this. Yeah, thank you, Pam. We'll, we'll hope to bring you back once COVID is over. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners hosted by David Polraj. 
Special thanks to Pam Lewis for joining us. Cover art by show manager and creative director Mackenzie Dial Fritcher. Edited and produced by Lauren Bernard. If you'd like to suggest interviewees, new topics, or just want to reach out, please email us at podcast at startupspace.app. All Breaking Down Barriers episodes are available on our website or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Feel free to rate, review, and subscribe for all the latest updates.